This afternoon at four o'clock, I am to be installed as your dean and rector. In all of Christendom, there is no job that I would rather hold. You and I are both hoping that I will be good at it. (laughs) Only time will tell. How will we know? One yardstick will be growth. We don't attract and hold a lot more people in the pews than I will not have been successful. Let's let that be one measure of my ministry. By coming frequently to church and bringing friends, you can help me out on my report card. (laughs) Churches can grow for the wrong reasons, so growth in numbers is not the final measure of a dean. What would that be? My answer will sound quaint. In olden days, they called the work of priests the cure of souls. And I still think that that is the final goal of ministry. The cure is more difficult to measure than the head count, but it is a real and noticeable effect. I read a study once of the changes that occur in people that have had a near-death experience. Sociologists can chart the effects up to and including ways these people have become more loving. Theoretically, the same methods could chart the effects of the Trinity experience. So the mission I've accepted is the cure of souls. When we say cure, are we thinking cure as in hospital or cure as in smokehouse? In the first instance, ministry is penicillin fighting an infection. In the second, it is smoke and salt to flavor and preserve a ham. Am I a doctor or a farmhand? We get guidance on that question from this morning's readings. Malachi announces the coming of the Lord. Since Malachi disapproves of pigs, smoke and salt were not metaphorically available. Instead, he uses soap and fire to make his point. And of the Lord, he says, He is like a refiner's fire and fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the descendants of Levi, that would be you, and refine them like gold and silver until they present offerings to the Lord in righteousness. Switching back to our pork-friendly Arkansas habitat, that tells me that even healthy souls need preservatives, salt, and flavoring, smoke, to rise to our spiritual potential. This brings us to another question. What is a soul that one could flavor and preserve it? Some think of souls as something that we have distinct from bodies. However, I think of souls as something that we are, including bodies. Nancy Murphy, the philosopher, says, souls are spirited bodies, and I agree. This view is scriptural. In biblical Greek, the word for soul is psyche, which means life. As far as we know, the human soul is the most marvelous thing in all creation. 
Thomas Aquinas spoke of the soul as having faculties or powers. These powers are ordered like a ladder with three steps. From bottom to top, the levels are vegetative, sensitive, and rational. The vegetative powers are those that humans share with plants and animals. They are our powers for nutrition, growth, and reproduction. Without them, life would be boring. The sensitive powers include touch, taste, sight, and smell, and sound, but also more subtle powers of perception. For example, Aquinas spoke of our estimative power to recognize something that is useful or useless, friendly or unfriendly. This is the, if you see something, say something, reflex. Additionally, the sensitive powers include 11 kinds of emotion, love, desire, delight, hate, aversion, sorrow, fear, daring, hope, despair, and anger. All 11 are on display in any single episode of A Game of Thrones. According to Aquinas, lower animals have the full set of sensitive powers, dogs and cats and so forth. We're animals too. Like Aristotle, Aquinas classified animals, uh, humans as rational animals. Our rational powers are what set us apart from pigs, hippopotami, and bunny rabbits. There are just two rational powers, the intellect and the will. Together, these two drive our moral choices. Here's how that works. Our wills are drawn towards a variety of vegetative, sensitive, and spiritual attractions. Our intellect decides which of these attractions suits the moment. All are from God, but not all are right for that given moment. Looking at the big picture, a clear-sighted intellect will see that all good, all good, comes ultimately from God and will guide the will, the intellect will therefore guide the will to God as to our final destination. Throughout our lives, our souls are on the move in one direction or another. St. Paul is speaking to that process in this morning's reading. This is my prayer, he writes, that your love may overflow more and more with knowledge and full insight to help you determine what is best. Love that overflows with knowledge is the cure of souls. As I like to put it, open eyes, soft hearts, strong hands. That's what we'll be working towards these next several years at Trinity Cathedral. In saying this, I'm taking a position, making curing souls our goal rather than some other options. For example, we might instead operate as a historic preservation society, a choice that could tempt us given the beauty and the history that we have to work with here. Or we might plant a flag on one side or the other of church or state political divides, advocating change or buttressing resistance. Churches do that, 
and sometimes it's called for. Bart and Bonhoeffer planted a flag resisting the Third Reich. English evangelicals challenged and finally abolished slavery. We are back to moral choices. Our wills are drawn to a variety of political attractions. Our intellect decides which of these attractions suits the moment. Politically speaking, here is my reading of the moment. Historically, the Episcopal Church and the founders of our country have both held a high opinion of humanity. We have also shared an ethos that values unity through respectful disagreement. Debate isn't blood sport. It is a common enterprise that moves us all towards better understanding. I believe that ethos is a treasure of church and state. Throughout our society, church and state, that ethos seems to be unraveling at the edges. One of my favorite writers thinks so too. Marilyn Robinson wrote an essay praising our hard-won Western ethos and fretting that it seems to be slipping through our fingers. She says, Western society at its best expresses the serene sort of courage that allows us to grant one another real safety, real autonomy, the means to think and act as judgment and conscience dictate. It assumes that this great mutual courtesy will bear its best fruit if we respect, educate, inform, and trust one another. This is the ethos that is at risk. We were centuries in building these courtesies. Without them, Western civilization would be an empty phrase. I wholeheartedly agree with that. As your dean, my political agenda is aimed at strengthening this ethos. First, here in church, and then through the influence of the church more broadly through our Arkansas society. You see that agenda at work in my creation of SUMA, a high school student theological debate society. You see it in the lineup of the Insights lecture series, which includes thoughtful speakers from across the spectrum. Likewise, it was in my Thanksgiving preaching invitations to two governors of Arkansas, an Episcopalian Democrat followed by a Baptist Republican. I was happy when, out of respect for this cathedral, both accepted the invitations. Why would a church ever ask a governor to preach? That's a fair question. Through the course of a year, I think that there are two occasions when that can suit the moment. Our Episcopal Church calendar includes two holidays that were creations of the state, Independence Day, which was the brainchild of John Adams, and Thanksgiving Day, which was formally enacted by President Lincoln in 1863. In our nation that ingeniously holds church and state apart, historically, on those two days, both state and church give thanks to God for our blessings as a people remembering that in the end, we are accountable to God for how we use them. That is two days out of 365. It leaves hundreds of days a year for hashing out differences and arguing positions. That, too, is important work, 
holy work sometimes with high stakes. Rex populus. In this society, the people rule, which means that we cannot avoid the responsibility to take positions. But Thanksgiving and Independence Day are two days we set aside for remembering that even in the way that we work out differences, we are one people and uniquely blessed. My confident bet was that both Governor Beebe and Governor Hutchinson would see it that way, and in both cases, they did. I believe our country has been blessed and called by God to great things, though underachieving at the moment, as I think we'd all agree. In America, we aim high because church and state share faith that human beings are more than the sum of our vegetative and sensitive parts. Through our intellect and will, we are also endowed with freedom. It does take faith to see this. Another favorite writer is Robert Pym Warren. In All the King's Men, the protagonist is a southern, southern governor's assistant whose love life has gone sour and whose soul has gotten badly out of whack. He flees to California, where he feeds on the belief that, quote, all life is but the dark heave of the blood and the twitch of the nerve. When you flee as far as you can flee, he says, you will always find that dream, which is the dream of our age. Nerves and blood is all we are. For a moment, he is tempted by that vision. That is the dream of our age. It is an illusion for realism come to Trinity Cathedral. Through church, in faith, our vegetative nerves and sensitive hormones form in faithful, hopeful, and loving patterns as these bodies become vessels of the Holy Spirit. What we aim to build at Trinity is a community through whom these patterns spread and grow until they are the greater part of who we are. If and only if that happens, I will have been successful as your dean. Are you ready? Let's get started. <laughs>